0: Recently, there was a top-secret cable sent to CIA stations across the world saying that dozens of informants used as spies for the U.S. have been captured, killed, or compromised. According to one expert, because of technology, the old way of spying has become obsolete. Biometric scans, facial recognition, and even cell phones are revealing key facts about movements, patterns, and life associations. For more on how some of these old spying tactics aren't working anymore, We'll speak to Ken Delanian, national security correspondent at NBC News.
1: Yeah, sure. So this top secret cable to the workforce wasn't in response, as I understand it, to any particular incident, Was but was the counterintelligence folks at the CIA, the folks that are in charge of like security and protecting secrets, wanted to make sure that everybody knew that, hey, there have been a series of these penetrations. CIA informants have been caught, some some were arrested, some were executed. You know, this has been going on as long as the CIA has been spying, but it seems like it's getting worse. And one of the reasons is that technology is making it harder than ever before to do human espionage. And the reasons are obvious, right? I mean, the model of the CIA for decades has been to send CIA officers mostly to live in embassies overseas and to pose undercover as State Department diplomats, right? And to have a fake job during the day, a cover job, and then go out at night and to cocktail parties or whatever and try to recruit foreigners to spy for the United States. And they often used fake names to do that. And even in the course of covert actions, as they were traveling around across borders, they would use aliases and have fake passports. Well, all of that stuff is rendered almost impossible now in the modern world. Just think of one example. If you've grown up in the age of social media there are hundreds or thousands of pictures of you online in your true name that you can't get rid of no matter how many, how hard to try. So you have a country like China, which has a camera on every street corner in Beijing and they're running, they're scanning faces 24 hours a day and running them through facial recognition databases. You know, how could you possibly operate an alias? You can't, but that's just a minor part of it. I mean, you know, alias is not essential, but it's also really hard for them to hide their associations with the people that they are recruiting to spy. And so, and you know, the main culprit here obviously is the cell phone. Everybody's cell phone is a tracking device. And you can say, well, they just just leave the cell phone in the car. That creates a (laughs) pattern in and of itself if you're looking at someone. And you know, it's really hard with all these digital devices, not just phones, but the telematics in our cars. It's gonna get worse with the internet of things. It's really hard for us to hide what they call our pattern of life and our associations. And the guy I talked to that you mentioned, the former CIA officer, Dwayne Norman, part of his job in his 27-year career was studying this problem. And he has concluded that human espionage, as we know it, is done. It's got to be fundamentally rethought. Now, I have to say, most people at the agency and people I've talked to do not agree with that. They think that this is a problem that is surmountable, but he thinks they're kidding themselves. I mean, essentially, they think, oh, we can hack into all these databases. We can spoof the digital dust. We can figure out ways to make sure that we don't get caught using technology. And they can do that a lot of the time. But his point is the adversary is always going to find a way. There's always going to be something you didn't think of. And this model that we've had for decades, just for the CIA, just cannot work in the future going forward.
0: Yeah. And and as you mentioned, there's so much that goes into it. Part of it is obviously the technology for our adversaries is growing so much. So we're, in a sense, we're underestimating some of that. Some of the other things you did mention, biometric scans, facial recognitions, Artificial intelligence, the hacking tools—all of this helps them track the movement of CIA officers that are posing undercover. And you're right; you know, it makes it difficult for them to go out and recruit these people. So, I mean, obviously, the people that are working on this still believe in the tradecraft, think it still works, and it does does still work to some extent, right? But uh, Dwayne Norman, uh, any suggestions on what to do going forward? Because, you know, we have if we have to rethink. How we're doing it uh, you know what you know he's been studying this any suggestions from him
1: so he is the first to admit that he does not have the perfect answer to this what he does say though is that he thinks that some part of the answer has to be more of a what he calls a public-private partnership which really means the CIA convincing American companies to spy for the United States that's gonna be and really obviously, tough. <laughs> right I mean look that has been going on as long as there has been a CIA you know, it happens all the time. Companies put CIA people undercover, they help out, they interview, you know, t- tell what they saw in some foreign land. But the idea of doing it in an organized fashion where it's actually a program where people have to account for it, obviously going to be deeply controversial, you know, especially in the post-Snowden era where a lot of people who work for big tech companies are, you know, don't want to cooperate with the U.S. intelligence community. But it's absolutely true that some form of that is it's already underway. I mean, because, like right now, if you're in certain jobs at the CIA, you can't have any association with the agency. You can never set foot in the headquarters at Langley with a phone because that's trackable. So. There are people who are embedded in companies right now who only have very few people know they're associated with the CIA. Maybe one or two people at the company even. And sometimes they'll cycle back to their regular corporate job. And they, they work the corporate job the whole time. They're just also working as a spy. And I think that's the model that we're going to yeah. see increasingly in the future.
0: And part of this, too, is, uh, you know, what some other people have said is that the U.S. intelligence is, is a little rusty in a sense because we've been focusing so much on terrorism and those related things and getting back to this other regular spy craft is that's why we have to rethink it because we've been on that terrorism front so much. You
1: know, that is certainly a factor. I think that's almost two different conversations. Though There is certainly that is the, the idea that the CIA has its muscles have atrophied in terms of classic espionage. But the thing is, the classic espionage is, is transformed. I mean, the, the way they were doing it even 10 years ago does not work anymore. So it's got to be completely rethought. But in terms of like sloppy tradecraft, I mean, the CIA first realized they had a crisis back in 2006 when a group of CIA officers flew over to Italy to kidnap an Italian cleric who was a terror suspect. I happened to be in Italy at the time and I covered this case and an Italian prosecutor using cell phone records and geolocation records, figured out who all these people were and tracked their movements to hotels. And some of them were very sloppy. Some of them used their own names. And at the end of the day, he had an airtight case. He indicted 23 Americans. Some of these people still can't travel today. He exposed their whole operation because of cell phone records. And so that was like a wake-up call for the CIA. Hey, you guys have a problem here. And they started changing the trade cap, But, you know, that was 15 years ago. Imagine what the Chinese services can do now to use big data to unmask uh, CIA officers and their recruits.
0: Ken Delanian, national security correspondent at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Oscar. Great to be with you.
0: <laughs> Finally for this week, could luxury mystery boxes be the future of high-end discount shopping. A new solution for selling off overstock and off-season clothing has emerged in these mystery boxes, which can sell anywhere from $700 to $2,000. The only catch is that you don't know what's in the box until you open it. The high-end merch in these boxes is said to be two to three times the retail value of the box, but there is a chance it could always be a bust. This trend has even spilled over into the online arena with unboxing videos, where many people get very excited or very bummed out with what they get. For more on what these mystery boxes mean for the fashion economy, we'll speak to Jacob Gallagher fashion reporter at the Wall Street Journal. So
2: this whole notion is kind of driven around this idea that there's a lot of merchandise floating around out there in the retail space in the fashion world. You know, you go to any given store, you know, particularly here in America, and there's sales happening all the time. You hear from brands, they're having promotions all the time. But there's also this kind of cross section, this kind of world of the fashion space that has all this surplus merchandise. It's kind of, again, just floating out there. and. Some of that is driven, you know, in the past year by the pandemic, you know, particularly early on. The pandemic, there was a a significant amount of brands were kind of noticing that, you know, people just weren't buying stuff. Um, There was not a need for, you know, higher fashion items. There was not a need, you know, for for these kind of things that might make a statement out on the street. So these brands kind of saw themselves holding the bag a little bit on on some of this merchandise. Now, to be sure, this is not a, a, you know, COVID phenomenon. This is a topic that has been within fashion forever. What do you do with excess merchandise? You know, brands produce and they try really hard to produce to meet demand. Sometimes their supply outpaces that. So in the past, you know, we've seen brands, distributors, factories, even, you know, other department stores offloading merchandise or kind of selling merchandise through, you know, a discount retailer like a Century 21 or a Steinmart or, you know, something like the Guild Group for a time was really qu- quite good at this on, uh, on the Internet. What's happening now is this interesting marketplace where there's a lot of young folks, and I'm gonna say young men in particular, because it seems to be you know, most appealing to men, but, but these, these two companies, Heat and Scarce, that have emerged in the past year or so, they will market to both men and women, and their focus is really on this section of brands that we kind of call you know, luxury streetwear. It's brands like Off-White, Casablanca, Rude, Palm Angels, Amiri, and it's kind of this aesthetic of hoodies and bomber jackets and graphically printed jeans and things of this nature. So, kind of what you would deem, you know, mildly ostentatious clothing that's designed <laughs> to be worn on the street. It's not necessarily designed to be worn at a border. Right. Right. Um, and. That clothing is now through these companies being discounted and packaged in a way that the buyer doesn't know what they're getting. So you're buying a box at a certain price tier, you know, that's around seven hundred dollars, it's around two thousand dollars, and in it you're gonna get one to three items or four to eight items, something along that those lines. And really, you could open that box and it could be a pair of socks and a pair of jeans, um, or you could open it and, you know, if you've a higher tier, it could be a jacket, a sweater, jeans, and, 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 you know, more enticing items there. What really this whole thing is doing is preying on or appealing to, rather, to, to use a kinder term, what I would deem to be a real brand bias for this consumer. They want the brand. Right. They're really keen on getting you know, off-white. They're really keen on getting Palm Angels. And, And these brands might not be familiar at all to your listener, but they have a lot of clout within this fashion space, you know, for this certain consumer. So to them, it's like, you know, I will pay whatever. I don't know what I'm really getting. I have an option to select my absolute favorite brand. And these companies say they'll do their best to put one item from that brand on that list in the box. And, you know, if they get a, pair of Ricco and socks out of it, or they're really lucky and they get a sweater out of it, they're probably going to be happy regardless. Right. They just kind of want that brand name.
0: And, and at that point, you know, you're just hoping for the lottery, right? You're just wishing that you're going to get some of these standout items and you just don't know what you're going to get. These companies do offer returns. Mm-hmm. The company Heat says they get about 10 to 15 percent of boxes return. Scarce says about 5 percent return rate. So it's not like you're stuck with the items, but if you're going to return something, you got to return the whole box so you don't get to keep just a little bit of it. And as you mentioned, you know, one of these boxes can be 700 bucks. Another box can be about two thousand dollars.
2: And I would say in this age of we've become as, as internet consumers so used to, oh, you know, free returns and really easy returns and things of that nature. These returns are a little bit complex. You know, they you have to return the whole thing. You have to pay for the shipping fee. So it is a little bit of a risk. Now, to that end, these customers that have bought from these services, they like that risk. They kind of I, there's something about that that is really enticing to them. The secondhand market for this form of clothing is pretty robust. You know, you can go on sites like Grailed or eBay or Depop or the Real Real and find these brands and find items from them that are cheaper than retail. They're going to be older items. They're not going to be brand new. They might not have the tags on it. Things of that nature. But you can find these brands for cheaper elsewhere what this whole model does is it has this kind of gamified appeal to it right. and one thing that i kind of noticed and, and and that has been you know in my reporter's notebook for some time is this idea of unboxing videos on youtube and again it might not be something that your listener is 100 percent familiar with but on youtube There's this whole world of unboxing videos, and you know, they can be for any kind of consumer item. You know, there's a very famous story about a kid, a very young kid, who he opens like children's toys and has millions of views. Yeah, Ryan. I think his name is
0: Ryan or something like that. Correct. And you're right. I went through some of these videos, these unboxing videos. The people that are buying it get very excited when they get that one lucky item. There's even a whole thing of people reacting to the unboxing video saying, well, this one's probably not worth it. Or, hey, you got a handbag and you got something else. It is totally worth it. So it it is kind of uh, has this own online presence of its own. In the end, I just want to ask, though. so what does this say about the fashion economy in this sense? People, like you mentioned, maybe primarily young men are really attached Mm -hmm. to some of these high-end brands. But what else does it signal for the fashion economy? Well, what it signals is, is, is kind
2: of, one, this brand attachment, and this is something that we've kind of been watching in the fashion industry for a while. Uh, you know, you might remember or have, you know, heard tell of, you know, back in the 1980s and, and, and kind of into the into the 90s a little bit within the high fashion space. People were very logo-driven. There's a lot of logo-mania happening. They like to get the brand. They like to show off the brand. They were really keen on that. This isn't quite what we're seeing in terms of, you know, just saying, look at me, I've got my Gucci belt or look at me, I've got my Ferragamo loafers. There's a little bit higher thought that goes into this. It's, it's more like these, these consumers are really happy to just buy into the brand vision, you know, whatever they can get from the brand, they know it's going to embody the certain aesthetic that they're going for. And I will say often that aesthetic is kind of coming from somewhere in pop culture or something they've seen, seen on Instagram. You know, they saw someone they like wearing this clothing, or or like wearing this brand and they really want to get in on it. But What it also kind of tells us is this idea that newness might not be a real driving factor anymore. What I mean by that is, is, you know, contrary to a Century 21 or a Steinmark or things of this nature, a Filings basement, Nordstrom Rack, you go in and the clothes are laid out pretty poorly and they're not very romantic. You know, you're kind of looking at the bedraggled <laughs> remains of yeah. a couple seasons ago or, you know, a couple years ago or even a few months ago, and there's really little care. It's like it's gone from that main department store where it was new and shiny to suddenly it's lost all of its lust. What these brands are pretty good at, heat and scarce, these two companies, is packaging this stuff and really making it look enticing. Their Instagram's super slick. They've partnered with some, you know, quote unquote, cool influencers that have a big reach and have made these brands kind of seem sexy in a way with, with, you know, the way that they're presenting this material that, you know, presenting these items. But in terms of how the consumers actually responding, you know, I spoke to some of these customers and in a couple of cases, I would ask them, you know, do you think at all this is strange or this is weird that you're buying used or not used, I'm sorry, that you're buying old merchandise, that you're effectively buying something that is not, you know, the hottest thing off the runway. It might be a few months old. It might be a couple years old. And they didn't care at all. Didn't even seem to cross their mind, and I think that that's an interesting reflection of where we've gotten to with where a lot of young people are shopping for this type of clothing. You know, again, there's all of these resale sites and all of these secondhand sites out there, and there's this whole big conversation within high fashion right now that's not about vintage. No one, people don't really like to use the word vintage, but they love using the word archival. You know, it's like (laughs) we've gone from like. Like, you know, It's all you know, in the branding and like,
0: repackaging of it. <laughs> it's,
2: it. It's all in the branding, you know, you go from like antique to thrifted to, vri- to vintage, and yeah. now we're on to archival. And it's this idea that you're buying this clothing and the fact that it's in the past, the fact that it might not be even accessible now, actually has a lot of weight to this right. section of consumer. And this guy I interviewed, Devin Knight, one of the customers, he bought, you know, a couple boxes off of Heat and he had said, you know, what I liked about it was this idea that I was getting something that didn't have to necessarily be new that, you know, someone might not be able to have. And this was kind of what he was saying was this notion that you couldn't walk into, you know, Nordstrom's or you couldn't go onto a boutique website like Essence right now and see the same clothes. I thought that was really interesting. This isn't even... We're not even talking a year, five years, 10 years. We're talking a matter of months, even, that this hasn't been in a store. And he was really keen on it because it showed to him that this brand that he liked, it was something that not everyone would necessarily have.
0: Wow. I mean, well, the whole thing is interesting. As I said, I went down the hole of... The unboxing videos is kind of fun to watch, you know, the excitement and then kind of the duds that sometimes you get out there. But uh, it'd be interesting to see if, uh, you know, other brands or other uh, retailers, other companies try to pick up some of this model.
2: We are starting to kind of see that in terms of, you know, like particularly for Heat, which has been around for longer. They have had a lot of brands kind of come to them and they've had more open collaborations, if you will, saying, oh, we're partnering with Ida Ackerman or we're partnering with this brand represent out of London. And they're kind of doing it in tandem and out in the open. And It's, it's interesting that they're willing to just say this is happening in real time.
0: Jacob Gallagher, fashion reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you for the
2: time. Really appreciate it.
0: That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.